Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chronicle A's beat writer Susan Slusser, and today we're joined by longtime A's player development director Keith Lippman, who discusses Jesus Luzardo and many other A's top prospects, plus his own unfortunate first day in A's camp as a player in 1971. Also on the podcast today, Wall Street Journal baseball writer Jared Diamond, who's here to talk about the A's legacy in baseball business, as well as the current baseball labor situation. All that next on A's Plus. Today's guest on A's Plus is longtime A's director of player development, Keith Lippman. Keith, this is your 48th season with the Oakland A's organization, is that right? You you signed as a player in 1971, correct? Yes, that's uh, kind of the heritage that's uh, taken me to this point, uh, from the University of Kansas to uh, sitting at this desk at Fitch Park. So it's been a nice... 48 years or 47, wow. so it's been a, a real fun trek for me. You, you give Steve Wusinich a run run for his money. You're, you have to be the two longest serving team employees, I'm guessing. Yeah, the, we have definitely uh, outlived uh, competition. <laughs> you really have. Uh, now, your background at Kansas, um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, you were also a, a star football player there in baseball. You chose baseball, obviously. You work for the A's, and you, you were watching kind of, you know, you're not part of the the Billy Bean, David Forrest, upper level decision making, but I'm sure you were watching the Kyler Murray situation like everyone else and having been through that a little bit yourself, what did what did you make of the whole thing? You know, looking at my own experience, uh, having played both sports, uh, I kind of had mixed feelings about it. I know the passion is really important part of what you do. I was thinking more at this level of the speed of the game. I know in football, uh, as a player, I like the quickness of the game uh, and the ability to rebound and come back uh, from a play and you know reprove yourself or you know make an impact in a three or to five second you know period of time Uh, where in baseball it's a much longer pace and it's slower Uh, it took me a while as a baseball player to adapt to the speed of the game having played football and you know, most of the time in college, uh, it was geared more toward the football. I was on a football scholarship, so I would have to go over and uh, after spring practice, I was allowed to go over in my pads and go take batting practice. So there, the shifts back and forth were, were baseball is just so slow, but it's a great game. I mean, I loved, you know, obviously I've been in my whole life, but I did like the speed of, you know, some people are wired that way where you want to react and do things faster. Uh, but I uh, eventually learned to play the, the sport and uh, come to <laughs> enjoy baseball a lot more than football. Well, that's a good thing since you've, you've been here for so long. <laughs> um, now, you, you were gracious enough to talk to me and Ken Korak for our book that's coming out next month um, for, an inter- for, a, for a chapter that we wrote about you and, and the job you do here in, in player development. One of my favorite things you told us was the story of your very first day in A's camp when you arrived in 1971, I, I guess. Tell us a, about that day and how it started off. Well, <laughs> it was a very rough day just because uh, I was late. I, you know, I'd gotten in uh, and just signed, and I didn't expect that things were going to happen in, in this way. But uh, I was late for my first day. So <laughs> we were staying at the hotel called the Lost Dutchman, which is on Country Club and almost... Uh, the southern which is a long way from here 
And uh, I woke up and I realized that I, I wasn't going to make it. And uh, all I know is that uh, I had no other way. There weren't Ubers or Lyfts or any other ways to get there. Uh, taxis weren't available probably in Mesa, you know, that early in the morning. So at that time, I, I just started to run. I <laughs> got going, ran to the ballpark it, it, at least five miles just to get here my first day. And, uh, you know, obviously I arrive and, uh, you know, in those days, you, you don't do that. Uh, those, you weren't allowed to be late. So, you know, I, they were highly critical of, you know, this is your first day. What kind of person are you? You know, you who do you think you are? Uh, you know, they, they gave me a lot of grief for... Um, oh, big-time college football player, can't even make it on time. <laughs> exactly. And it, that's the sort of mentality was that, uh, you know, things were a little bit different back then. Uh, people were uh, quick to condemn and uh, judgments were pronounced very quickly on, you know, who you were, that was your character, whatever. So it took a little while for them to, uh, you know, forgive me of that initial bad first impression. I, I've learned since then that... Uh, being on time is very, very important. Well, my favorite part is that you, now you're kind of the guy that if a minor league player shows up late, you're the guy that has to kind of explain to him he needs to be on time. It is rather ironic that uh, that is the case. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have a certain sense of understanding, but uh, I also know that it, it taught me a really good lesson. And, uh, you know, the time element in any business, any part of what you do, is so important that uh, it's a good lesson to learn as a young person. And fortunately, it didn't uh, cost me <laughs> too much uh, grief. Yeah, well, I guess you could have told him you got your cardio in for the day or something. Oh, that's for sure. Um, now, the A's farm system right now seems like it's a, it really is in good a shape as it's as it's ever been. Um, I think fans certainly know about Jesus Lazardo and the fact that he he's coming maybe even sooner rather than later. I, I think he's probably the person I'd want to start off uh, talking about. But there's more there's more behind him. But give us a quick uh, your quick thoughts on Jesus Lazardo and what fans might expect. Just a very mature kid. The first thing I noticed about him when I met him when we he was traded over and came actually to Arizona, and uh, he hadn't thrown very many games up to that point, and I was just so impressed with his maturity. Uh, very rarely do you see kids like that that uh, have a confidence, they exude a personality, and, and they're not afraid. They came up, introduced himself to me, and uh, you know I hadn't had a chance to even meet him yet, and he came to me, so that was a good sign when you see somebody like that. And then you know I watched him as he's progressed. Um, there's a certain way that he pitches. There's an aggressiveness to him. There's a way that uh, he's not afraid to try things. Like he'll quick pitch hitters. He pitches by feel. Uh, he may hold longer on one uh, delivery, and other times he changes up things that you don't normally see at a young guy uh, that, you know, he's not afraid to try things. He's got a little risk-taking uh, element to him that a lot of young players are afraid. They'll just stick to what they know. Uh, he's outside the box a little bit and aggressive. Uh, that's why he has so many good pitches. He's got a wide variety, array of pitches uh, that allows that because of he's not afraid to try them. And until you have that capability, uh, it really just shows what he's capable of maybe becoming because he's, he's already done it at 19, 20 years old. Yeah. It, it, I certainly wouldn't think anyone would be surprised to see him 
this year in the big leagues, maybe sooner than later. What, what's your feeling about how he would handle something like that? You know, just having only four or five innings at AAA, uh, there is something to, you know, pitch against a little more veteran type hitters, uh, but it happens. I mean, guys are capable of doing it, but at some point, uh, whoever you are in this game, the game will stop you at some point, and then you will have to determine how you resurface. Can you get back up and handle it? His, uh, you know, makeup looks like he's going to be able to do that, but he hasn't really experienced it yet. It's all been pretty good for him so far. But at some point, uh, he will have to adjust and he'll have to deal with failure. And that's just the point of, you know, is he going to do it at AAA or at the big league level? And what's what's going to be the easiest way for him to learn the lesson and, you know, build off of that? Because uh, sometimes failure can be devastating to young players that have never really experienced it before. So you tend to be a little more cautious, especially with a really good, talented kid like that. The, the actual progression might be the best thing for him rather than, you know, just jumping him up just because he might be able to do it. Now, he's not the only good young pitcher in camp. Um, I have been hearing a lot about Parker Dunchy, who he, he's very good friends with, pitching the same rotation. Brian Howard, who's not in camp, but was also part of uh, that, that going through those same levels. Bar- Parker Dunchy seems like he's coming along pretty quickly. What can you tell us about him? Well, actually, you could talk about Dunchy and Howard almost as the same person. They almost have identical numbers. Uh, both are highly aggressive, good college pitchers that uh, throw strikes, uh, are unafraid to make contact with the hitters. Uh, they come right at you. They have all have good change-ups. Uh, both, both are they're real similar type guys. Uh, Howard has a really good cutter uh, that is a really solid pitch. Dunchy came up with a lights-out changeup uh, over the course of the summer. He's another guy that was able to make the adjustment because he, he pretty much just relied on his fastball, um, curveball kind of scenario. And then he came up with his changeup when he got to Midland. And he's developed into a four-pitch pitcher now that, uh, you know, those are the kind of guys that work fast. There's a good rhythm and tempo about their game. And uh, they don't have the overpowering, the 95 to 98, but they are pitchers. And, you know, they throw in the low 90s, and uh, they know what they're doing. Uh, it's a, it's a really fun to see guys that are competitive, uh, that have been really good in college, that uh, are, have already moved through the system. These are 2017 signees that are approaching AAA already. So that's it's a rapid rise through a system. Yeah, I was surprised when I saw Bar- Parker Dunchy's name on the – major league invite list for for camp and um from everything i've seen he's he's really somebody for people to keep an eye on if they get a chance to come to an exhibition game or follow the minor leagues at all he's uh, he's come real quickly yes he has and uh you know to perform at, at a tough level to go to double a and and both of those guys to do what they they've done so quickly uh we don't n- normally rush pitchers through yeah. systems mm-hmm. and uh, they both handle it pretty quickly that's great. Now, one area of emphasis the last couple of years has been um, increasing the number of prospects that, that have been acquired from Latin America, 
and we're starting to see some more of that at the upper levels right now particularly some of the Cuban guys are really interesting uh, I've been hearing a lot about Romero um, you know Ruiz is in camp uh, Lazarito people I think a lot of people are familiar with Lazarito Armenteras who you guys signed a few years ago um, what's the state uh, would you say of uh, the player development coming from Latin America and and some of these guys that we're seeing in camp this year First of all, I, I should probably give credit to Dan Feinstein because he has created a, a whole new um, area of importance for us in the system. We were always kind of into the Latin America scene, but Dan has taken it to a whole new level and is, is really outstanding. And to be able to go where he's gone and acquire the players that he has uh, has been exceptional. Yeah, and uh, more coming from what I understand. Absolutely. And, you know, they're looking at guys that are 15 and 16 right now. And so he's really on the forefront of understanding, you know, what's out there. And they have really good scouts. Raymond Abreu, who is our director of, uh, you know, international uh, scouting down there, does a great job with it. So they, they're on it. Miguel Romero, I think, right now is probably the lead guy. He has the best stuff of any of the young players that I've seen. Uh, 95 96 fastball pitched really good in the fall league uh has a outstanding breaking ball has come up with kind of a, a change now uh and uh he's come back and uh he's opened a lot of eyes his electric stuff and uh he may be the you know the next kind of the trevino type guy that uh, is coming that nobody really knows but he's a sleeper that uh you know he's more experienced he gets and he's right on the forefront of uh, you know making that happen. Yeah, yeah. Bob Melvin mentioned the first day of camp, like, oh, he's he was interesting just to watch his bullpen session. So he's definitely right. on the radar. Certainly the coaching staff, at least. Exactly. Uh, Armenteros is a, a little further behind. Uh, he's you know at uh, just 19, I believe now or 20, uh, just making his way through a system, uh, able to play at a very difficult ballpark last year to go to Beloit in the Midwest League. Uh, where the weather is almost like it was this morning, 32 degrees, and you're playing in tough conditions. You're from Cuba and never have gone through that before. Uh, he put up a pretty solid year. So he's advancing, will uh, probably go to Stockton this year. And, you know, his is going to be more incremental. And uh, Romero may flash and get there a little quicker. But uh, Armenteros is a long-term uh you know, toolsy, you know, everything that everybody had spoken about him. Uh, he's right on track, even though it's going to be a little bit longer process. Uh, anybody else that kind of jumps out to you from the Latin American part of the system? You know, an interesting story is that we have a kid named Eric Mariñez that was a shortstop, um, kind of a, we're turning him into a utility player. Uh, last year he had a suspension for some type of uh, activity. It wasn't anything major, but he was suspended. Uh, while he was here, uh, we decided to kind of give him a try to see, because we always liked his arm, so we, we decided to develop him as a pitcher during that suspension. So he had 50 days where uh, that's all we did. We just worked on that. So we he went back, finished the season as a position player, went to instructional league, and started showing some 95 to 98 velocities with a outstanding changeup, and so he's somebody that you know is a conversion that you don't see happen too often. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, Ogando was the last one that did it. You know, he's with us, went to Texas, and he became a really good 
pitcher for Texas, I, I see this Mourinho could kind of maybe be in the same category as that, even though he's never really pitched. Uh, he has the stuff that may play out like that. So he's somebody off the radar, but somebody that was in our, uh, you know, our system. That uh, so a lot of times it happens. Guys will change uh, from being a position player to pitcher, and uh, it works out fine for him. Sean Doolittle, that's one of our all-time there, favorite stories ever. I, I love that one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. One. Yeah, there was a little bit of buzz about Mourinho's during the winter meetings around the. Rule five draft. I think there were teams that were had either seen about him or heard about him during instructional leagues. He must have been really impressive. Yeah, outstanding. And uh, you know, it takes a little bit to rule five a guy that's never ever been yeah. <laughs> pitched. Yeah. pitched other than that's how good the buzz league. was. Yeah. yeah, and that's how good his arm is. Yeah. And uh, he has a real feel for pitching, which you know it's kind of surprising. But a very good athlete. He you know he played short third. He, we put him in the outfield. And uh, I think this may be the, the, the best, fastest, quickest route for him to get to the big leagues. Oh, that's interesting. Now, you mentioned um, Luke Trevino, which um, makes me want to ask you about J.B. Wendelkin because he came up you know, last year at the end of the season, and, boy, he looked as good as just about anybody in the bullpen that last month. What can you tell me about him? And, uh, obviously, he's got to be a you know, consideration at some point on the big league roster, I would think. Probably one of my favorite stories, just watching what he went through, um, he started with us when he came over in the trade uh, as an absolute thrower, max effort guy, got hurt, had the surgery, and every day, you know, I come into my office and the rehabbers are here on a regular basis rehabbing from their surgeries, and I saw him go from somebody that, you know, wasn't physically in the kind of shape he is now or mentally, uh, all the things that he had to go through for uh, a year. I see it on a regular basis. I watch his path in and out. How you doing? How's your family? You begin to know these kids, and then you see the struggles with what they go through in the, in the rehab process, the ups, the downs, uh, the interactions with our rehab coordinator, with Craig Lefferts, and you see what a struggle it was for him. To see him come out and do what he did is a, is a thrill for all of us because, you know, you don't know where guys are going to come back after a surgery, if they're going to make it, or you got to go back and get a real job, you know. So he's the one of the really good stories of dedication, hard work, um, you know, the ability to overcome a real serious surgery. And uh, he absolutely was able to do it. On my wall, we have a thing of our... Pick to clicks, you mm -hmm. can see, or if you were watching, yeah. every staff member puts their name on who they think is going to be the oh, guy. Oh, look at that. Lip Wendelkin. That, yeah. so I like it. That was the guy, and uh, our rehab uh, strength and conditioning coach put him on there, too. So there are two of us, really. I, there are a couple guys on there that pick Lizardo. I'm not sure that that's fair. I mean, that's Yeah, that was illegal. Yeah, that's illegal. Grady, Grady. of course. Come on, Grady. <laughs> and Rick Magnate. So... You know, you try to pick somebody, the obvious is just, that's too cheap. Yeah, oh, Lefty, cheap. our yeah. strength and oh, yeah. or our rehab coordinator put Wynn Elkin on there. So yeah. three of us, you know, a year ago, and he hadn't done anything at this point. He just looked good. He has a power sinker. Uh, he's got a great, sharp breaking ball, and he's throwing 95. So I, my money's on him. I would, I would bet that he's going to be the guy that Trevino was last year. Now, another name... Um, Fans might be familiar with the, just the name because it's so fantastic in in minor in big league camp is Sky Bolt. What can you tell us about Sky Bolt beyond the obvious that he has maybe one of the best sports athlete kind of names in history? 
It, it is a good one. Yeah. Uh, it's always a fun one to talk to. But he's a special kid, too. Uh, started the year in Stockton. It goes all the way back to his freshman year in, at North Carolina, where uh, he, you know, had a great year. And then ever since then, he has not really performed. That's sort of the rap against him. Uh, so, you know, he kind of, as a professional, been in and out, never consistent. So he started the year in Midland last year, and the game stopped him, like I had mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So he had his moment where, he, you know, he's, he, he didn't perform. So we sent him back to Stockton, and he was able to understand that that failure, he could go back and reinvent himself. So he worked really hard, he, mechanics, approach, worked with Brian McCarn, did a whole lot of things mentally and physically to get him back. You know, we, we told him, we said, Sky, this isn't going to be for the whole year. We're going back because you are a talented kid. Give it a month, put yourself back together, and then we'll send you back. I'll, you know, one way or another, you're going to go back to Midland. So he worked really hard and was able to, comp- you know, accomplish that. Got back to Midland, and he ended up hitting 20 home runs, 19, 20 home runs. Uh, he's a gifted athlete. He runs. He's got an above-average arm. Um he just he wasn't aggressive enough as a hitter uh, at, at Midland when he started. He started to gain confidence, and by the end of the year, um, he goes to you know the Arizona Fall League and plays there and is very successful there. Probably the best call of my off season. A lot of times I have to call and release players. My call got to be to, you know to tell him you know congratulations you're on the 40 man roster. So those a story yeah. of a, of watching a guy almost in tears because he's you know guys hate to go back right. when they started at Absolutely. Midland they think it's the end of the world but he had enough vision and insight to know that this was probably the best thing for him yeah. and it, he turned it back around it was a it was a great story that's amazing uh, anybody else in uh, big league camp that maybe fans should keep an eye on or or uh, watch for for you for for the future maybe down the line. Luis Barrera is a, a real interesting kid. He he would fit into your category of uh, Latino players that have you know gotten to that level yeah. uh, to get onto the roster, which hasn't happened a whole lot in the past. You know where we get a guy to that position, but he's sort of uh, equal to like uh, I was talking about uh, Dunchy and uh, you know sort of the same comps. Well, he he works together with. Bolt. Those two yeah. are almost identical. They're both seven runners. They both have plus arms, uh, slashing type hitters. They both play center and right. Uh, they're equal. Although Barrera doesn't have the the home run power like Bolt does, uh, he has nothing better to watch him go first to third. He's an upright, fast runner. Uh, you know, somebody that has an instinct to steal bases. Aggressive. He's going to make a lot of mistakes because of his aggressiveness, but we would much rather have a player like that that uh, is exciting. Yeah. You know, they're fun to watch play. Yeah, it's interesting. So in the big league clubhouse, uh, Dunchy, Bolt, and Brera are all sort of sitting together, which is how I found out that Dunchy is fluent in Spanish and mm-hmm. that uh, Bolt is pretty close to fluent because they're all speaking Spanish together all the time, and Brer actually speaks English pretty well too. So uh, it's this fun little kind of multilingual little group in the the big league clubhouse. It's really neat. There's a camaraderie. I think our staff and our organization is kind of put together. Is that these guys like each other? Yeah. They like to uh, participate and play and challenge each other. Like Howard and Dunchy, 
uh, they battle each other for the strikeout lead, the less walks. You know, there, there's a good friendly competition. Barrera and Bolt, the same thing. It's a, and you know, they want the other guy to succeed, but you know, they compete. And uh, that's sometimes things you you see in players these days that they don't really have that competitive edge. You know, you got to sometimes push that. To, you know, when it's time to compete, you got to go after it. Right. Well, these are definitely guys to, for everybody to keep an eye on, and, and it should be fun. I, they all, some or all, might be up at the big league level at some point this year because I think this time last year we were talking about Ramon Laureano. So, and look what he had, Nick Martini, and look what they wound up doing. Now, um, the biggest news maybe in the minor league system in the offseason was obviously the switch from Nashville to Las Vegas at AAA level. And obviously, you're not the minor leagues operations guy, but for you, does this change much of what you do? Does it make it a little bit easier that the AAA is now in Vegas, which for for you, you're based here in Arizona, rather than Nashville. Does that make your life a little easier? A whole lot. Uh, for one thing, you know, to get people out of Vegas is really simple. You know, Nashville, not so much. You know, there was difficult at times where Mickey or Beto would, you know, a lot of our moves are made after extra inning games or you use a lot of pitching that night or somebody gets hurt. You know, I'm the first one that gets the call. And then, you know, it could, it's 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And then you start to have to readjust and figure, well, who's it going to be and how are you going to get them there? And, you know, they need them the next day. You can't mess around. Vegas, fortunately, you know, they were in flights all times of the day. That will really help us. And it's easy to get to Oakland from there, easy to get to our club on the road. So uh, the people there, Don Logan, the GM, absolutely one of the best baseball guys uh, that I've ever met, Uh, real organizational friendly, he's player friendly. Uh, I know when we would go in, when we were in Sacramento or whatever club we were in in the Coast League, he would he was the GM and vice president. He would be the guy that would meet me, uh, in, you know, in the stands or in the clubhouse. Yeah, he would go out of his way. Uh, so uh, he's good friends with Billy and we've got to build a great relationship That's over great. the years. So uh, it's great to be involved with a partner that understands baseball you know it's just not the economic side of it he understands the movement and uh what we go through on a day-to-day basis so uh we we really enjoy that partnership uh is the best one that we've had in, in a long time yeah and a brand new ballpark have you seen it yes we were there for the uh announcement in october david billy myself and zach bash all went and uh it was just you know being kind of uh, they had begun enough to where you could see the structures and you know where it was. We took a great tour. Uh, it's in a great scenario. It's right in the Red Rocks, and uh, it actually, it should be part of your visit when you go to Vegas because it's uh, a beautiful area. It's going to be a great ballpark, and there's uh, wonderful things to do in the area. It's 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 outstanding. I think our players are really going to enjoy being there. Yeah, so go to Vegas and maybe catch Jesus Lazardo in, in action at the, the new ballpark or maybe some of these other guys we've been talking about. Exactly. The And it's interesting. They have a a, a new name for the, the, the Aviators. Aviators, right? that's right. The Aviators. Yeah. yeah. So, like you know, I think it's, it's a Howard, in honor of Howard Hughes or that their corporation that, that runs that. And uh, it's a well-run organization and uh, a lot of fun. Uh, it's going to be a little more I mean Nashville's great we had four really good years there and we had great years in Sacramento but uh, we kind of have a legacy of putting good AAA teams together and players that uh, have impact in the big leagues over the years uh, 
the AAA team has really been a resource. As Bob Melvin says, uh, we run 50 to 55 players in and out, and uh, you know that AAA team is a huge part of our success. Now, you guys aren't dumb either. Every time you've moved, the last three times you've moved your AAA franchise, it's been straight into a brand new ballpark. Yeah, it's not a bad little yeah. uh, run, I guess. You know, we've we've had some good uh, scenarios. Are you guys building a new ballpark? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's time. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, just uh, time for the big league club to get a new one. That would be great. Awesome, Keith Lipman. Thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You thanks too, for- Susan. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Another big thanks to Keith Lipman for his insights into the minor league system. After this, we'll hear from Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal. Today on A's Plus, we are delighted to welcome in Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal. Jared, uh, you're essentially the Wall Street Journal's baseball writer, right? Basically the national, you're the guy. Yeah, I'm the guy. We have a baseball writer. People <laughs> often are surprised to hear that. Uh, but I do exist, and I am the, I'm just running around spring training trying to cover an entire league uh, all by myself, which is both challenging and a lot of fun. Well, you do an awesome job at it. Now, as, a, as the national baseball writer, what, what was your take on the A's and their season last year? Because they did, you know, the prognosticators early in the year certainly overlooked them after three last-place finishes the, the years before. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it makes me a bad writer to say I did not see it coming. <laughs> but I guess no one else did either, so I guess I, I could hide behind that. Uh, yeah, it was an amazing season. They were an incredible team. It was Really, I got to go out to Oakland late in the season when things were really percolating for them and just seeing that clubhouse. And there was clearly something there that I don't think uh, you could see from afar. Like when you actually saw the team, saw how they interact and saw them play, you realized how good they were, especially when you factor in the bullpen, the way they used it. It was pretty dynamic. And look, it sets big expectations now for this season. Now all of a sudden, uh, you're coming off a 97 win year. You can't drop back down to 77 wins. You need to sort of continue that um, in a really tough division. So I think there'll be a lot more eyes on this team for sure than there were in April, May of last year. They, they kind of patchwork their starting pitching last year, and this year it looks like they might have to. It's a you know a little thin in the rotation still. Is it possible for a team to do that two years in a row successfully? I wouldn't have thought so until last year. You look around the league and you see what teams are doing. Tampa Bay won 90 games with a rotation that was probably even less secure than what uh, Oakland is going to have. So it, it defies all conventional wisdom about baseball. You wouldn't think this could work, but I think enough teams now have shown that it can. And I don't think you could just dismiss it out of hand. I don't think, for instance, it was a fluke that Oakland and Tampa Bay were both good doing this. It was not an accident. It means it can work. Look, maybe teams will uh, adjust. Maybe there's some way to even be smarter about how you run this rotation. So while I don't think it's necessarily ideal, I'm sure they would love to have uh, three or four really good starters. I'm sure they feel confident knowing they made it work once so they can make it work again. Uh, now, as a Wall Street Journal baseball writer, uh, the A's you know, are sort of known as one of the business kind of teams. Obviously, Michael Lewis made a, essentially a name for, for the A's and for Billy Bean by writing Moneyball. Um, do you kind of view them a little differently as a result because they are, are sort of this, this team that's known for being out, out in the forefront in the business world? Yeah, there's definitely uh, still sort of this aura around the A's because everything that's happened in baseball in the last 15 years feels like it originated here. All these general managers, all this innovation 
Um, it started here. This was the incubator, which makes sense considering it's in the Bay Area. It's what it should be. I think the challenge now for the A's is that uh, they're not necessarily the smartest kid in the class anymore. There are a lot of people that have risen to their level, maybe even some that have surpassed them in how sophisticated they are and how progressive they are. And I'm sure it's a challenge for this organization to live up to that reputation of always being ahead of the curve. It was a lot easier to be ahead of the curve in 2002 when they were the only ones with some of these thoughts. And now you look at what every team is doing and you realize, uh, you know, there's guys that are who grew up with Billy Bean who are now GMs of teams, which is hard to imagine that that's what's happened. Uh, so I think that's always going to be the tough part for the A's to sort of keep rising above as teams like the Astros and, and others and the Cubs uh, continue to push the ball forward. Now, you obviously cover labor a lot. We were, we were talking earlier and you, you mentioned that um, this offseason essentially mostly wrote labor stories. Where do you see things going? Because obviously the system right now, from certainly from the player's perspective, uh, is, is not ideal with so many guys still out there on the market. Uh, as we're talking, Bryce Harper is still out there. Numerous other you know, fairly decent free agents are, are waiting. How, how do you see this playing out? Yeah, I get asked a lot about will there be a strike? And you read a lot, oh, there's going to be a strike. There's going to be a strike. And yes, things look very bad right now. All that said, uh, I think it's way too early to just say there is going to be a strike. Uh, no one wants to go have a work stoppage. They want to work it out. And I do think that both sides, including the league, recognize that there are some problems that need to be addressed. And I think there are certainly some issues uh, that the league and the owners are going to be willing to sort of discuss. Service time manipulation being a big one. Uh, Rob Manfred even addressed that this week. Uh, explicitly saying that we think that's an area that we could agree upon. Like it's going to be a brutal negotiation. And I think the ideal ending of this is that baseball's financial structure is fundamentally changed, which is very hard to do in labor negotiations. Labor negotiations tend to uh, be based on precedent. You have, it's, you have what you have and you might adapt it, you might tweak it, but to totally flip it over is hard. And that's what the players are going to want. They're going to want either free agency earlier or they're going to want younger players to be paid better earlier in their careers. So you don't have situations where Aaron Judge, for instance, is making like $600,000, even though he's objectively one of the best five hitters in baseball. So it's going to be very tough. I do hope uh, it works out because no one wants a work stoppage. That would be terrible for everybody. The other thing I'd say is Manny Machado got a $300 million deal. Bryce Harper will probably beat it. Uh, I don't think that means everything is fine. And I think there's some people saying, oh, this means everything is fine. Manny Machado and Bryce Harper are outliers. They are not the players that the Players Association are worried about. They were always going to get paid. It's the middle tier players or the bottom of the market that's concerning. As that wealth is distributed, it seems like uh, a small percentage of players are now collecting a very high percentage of the salary. This might sound familiar to the world, <laughs> to the world yes. uh, but it's something that I think the players also might want to address to try a little bit to worry less about the $300 million contract and ensure that guys like Dallas Keuchel and Adam Jones, uh, good veteran baseball players, are able to have jobs. Because right now, as of we're talking, they don't. <laughs> Is it, has there just been such a fundamental shift in the the idea that, you know, you've got the six years of service time and that's now a, a lot of the guys peak coming out of that. They're just not going to the 
the old idea was you would make your money after that. You kind of get paid a little bit for what you've done. Now it just doesn't seem to work like that. Their guys are coming out at 31, 32, and they're being paid on projections instead. Yeah, so I think there's a few reasons that's happening. One is the aging curve has changed in baseball since the mid-2000s because of testing for performance-enhancing drugs. You can no longer expect players to be great at age 37, 38. Some guys still do it, but it, it was obviously much more common when most of the players seemed to be doing it artificially. The other thing is there was, I think, a time in baseball not long ago where there was almost an unspoken sort of agreement where the players get a little screwed at the beginning, but don't worry, it'll kind of be made up on the back end. Uh, that has changed. Owners and GMs especially are not sort of honoring that unspoken agreement, which, look, they're not obligated to. The, Unless there is actual collusion going on, which there's no evidence of at this moment, uh, they're just operating within the system and using it to their advantage. So I don't begrudge owners for that. That said, uh, teams are a lot savvier now. You hear a lot more about how teams take all the emotion out of these decisions. For instance, when Manny Machado signed with San Diego, we heard the Phillies regime say, well, he just went outside our valuation, so we had to walk away. Not long ago, uh, that wouldn't happen that way. There is sort of more of an understanding that these decisions aren't always completely rational, and maybe you can't think of a baseball spending the way you would think of spending on another business. But the way teams are set up now, that is how they're thinking, and I think that's part of why this is happening, where there is no sense of being willing to sort of extend yourself to make the team better. We have a number, and if the price goes over it, we're gonna walk away, and old school owners, uh, wouldn't see it that way. You'd have a guy like George Steinbrenner who would say, yes, I am aware that this is probably more than I should pay, but I really want to get this guy to win the World Series. It's different now with modern front offices. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how do you see the overall health of the game, uh, the, the economy of the game, essentially? You know, we hear a lot about attendance dips and ratings down and, and uh, pace of play issues and all that. Where, where do you think baseball is just simply from a financial standpoint? The game's obviously doing fine. It just made $11 billion last season. It's gonna have another monster revenue year this year. But there definitely are some sort of longer term trend lines that I would think people are paying attention to, at least in the commissioner's office. Uh, the TV ratings is one issue. I think national TV ratings for everything are obviously going down. So the local TV ratings are really where baseball is gonna make its money, especially these local TV deals. So the big question with that is, Will they remain so enormous as cord cutting and other issues continue to take over the TV landscape? Uh, people talk about the cable TV bubble. We'll see if that becomes a thing. If it is, that's very bad news for all sports except maybe the NFL, which doesn't have local TV. Um, the good news, I would say, for baseball right now is just in the last couple of days, uh, there was a very positive reporting uh, about participation, youth participation, which in most sports is going down. In baseball, it's actually gone back up uh, pretty substantially in the last five to six years among kids. That's a positive, that's very important. Where baseball struggles though, is uh, after age 12. They do really well from five to 12, and then once they move out of Little League and move on to the big field, uh, you, they lose a lot of kids. So I think that's gonna be a challenge for Major League Baseball to figure out ways to get 13, 14, 15 year olds to stick with baseball. Part of it's the field, right? The field gets bigger and a lot of kids literally cannot 
play anymore. They can't make the throws. So these are all issues I think are going to be crucial, especially with football participation going down. Right. It's an opportunity for baseball to go into some areas where football has been king and start chipping away a little bit. And I'm sure it's something they're talking about heavily in upstairs somewhere. Well, on uh, that somewhat uplifting note, uh, thanks for joining us, Jared Diamond. And we uh, hope you will join us again in the future on A's Plus. Thanks for having me. You can find Jared Diamond's work in the Wall Street Journal, and he's on Twitter at Jared Diamond. He's also a co-founder of the 30 Newsletter on Twitter at 30 Newsletter. Thanks to Libby Coleman for producing this episode. John Shea will be filling in on the A's in Mesa and will bring you new episodes of A's Plus next week. A's Plus is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. Follow me on Twitter, at Susan Slusser. Support A's Plus and a lot of great journalism with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe.